0: Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses, and Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and Its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses All available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American citizenship and its decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hanson today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. Hillsdale.edu slash vdh. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host and the star and the namesake. That's Victor Davis Hanson. And he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He has a an official website. It's called the Blade of Perseus, and you'll find that at victorhanson.com. I'll talk more about that later in the podcast and why you should be subscribing to it. The aforementioned Hoover Institution is the home of um, Strategica, which is the online military, I'll call it online military journal, that Victor oversees as part of a broader Military project at Hoover, but there's a new issue out. New issue of Strategica is out, and it talks about NATO expansion. And we're going to get Victor's thoughts on the pieces in this new uh, issue. And we'll get to that right after these important messages. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, You'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash victor50. That's victor O R five zero And use the code VICTOR50. That's code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month schedule your free consultation now call 1-800-245-6000 that's 1-800-245-6000 or visit tnusa.com slash victor tnusa.com slash victor we're back with the victor davis hansen show so victor you have um us the full title again. I know you've said it many times of uh, of the um, the military uh, group that you oversee at Hoover. And one of its aspects is Strategica, an online journal, which is, I think, issue number 85, 86, thereabouts. And the this particular issue is about NATO expansion and a lead piece by Paul Ray. And um, oh, what was Ralph Peters what's his yes. th- has, has, uh, has Norman, a piece. Of
1: Norman Nymark, has a really good answer.
0: Yeah. Examples. So it's, uh, yeah, NATO expansion is, is happening. And is it a good or a bad thing? Um, a troubling thing. Why is it happening? Um, Victor, this happens, I guess, a little bit under your watch. So tell us about the new issue of Strategica and why this, um, what's to be recommended about these pieces in it.
1: Well, what we do is uh, every three and a half weeks, we try to get a contemporary issue and then illustrate the nuances or the the problems with it or the controversies over it by examples from the past, given the Thucydidean dictum that things change, but human nature remains constant, therefore ancient. And all history in general has something to say of value in the present. and. In this particular case, we had the, we had our big annual meeting. It was really a, it, it was just an amazing meeting. We had people from Ukraine. We had people from the military, all aspects of the conflict. And it, it's off limits to the media. It's not, no nobody can quote anything. There's no written materials that can be published out of those discussions. We had some very powerful intellects there, I thought, and that, uh, it was a joy to kind of chair it, and for that issue, we talked about NATO expansionism. And so, Paul Ray, the Hillsdale historian, who's you know engaged in this massive project of, I think it's on volume eight of the Peloponnesian War history, and then he wrote the the background of giving us the contours of the controversies and things about expanding NATO. And then we had norm norman namark and Ralph peters and usually those can be adversarial but they were pretty much in line and i guess what was interesting is when we say nato enlargement and we look at this original alliance it's got like 30 members right and you you wonder uh, was expansion a wise thing and most people now feel that because of article four that pledges, at least it doesn't say you have to, but it does suggest that people in the alliance, I think there's actually even 31 members now, but people in the alliance have to come or should come to the aid of somebody in extremists. Okay, so they said, well, we expanded after the Cold War and there were, we took advantage of the Russians, you know, the Berlin Wall collapse, they were in chaos, Yeltsin was fluid and all of a sudden we got all of the east the warsaw pact flipped flipped in a variety of senses they went from being communist to democratic they went from being in the soviet bloc into the eu bloc eventually and they became not warsaw pact 2.0 but nato members and then the question was well nato seems to be operating beyond its original charter as in uh, the war against Molosheviks and the Balkans when NATO planes bombed him out of power. The Soviets resented that attack on another Slavic person, even though there was criminal, you know, was genocidal activity on the part of his government. And uh, in addition, people felt, well, when you put places like Slovakia in or Lithuania, if you're going to do that, then you're you're picking very vulnerable frontier states. They could be overrun in a surprise attack by Putin in an hour or two, and then you're pledging us to go to war. Or in the case of Ukraine, if you want to put Ukraine right now, as Zelensky wants, into NATO, they're in an active war. So if you put Ukraine into NATO right now, they would, by any logic, uh, invoke Article 4, and we all 31 countries be at war with nuclear Russia. So that, that was perilous, but what these articles are trying to argue is that because Putin overshot and thought he could do a thunder road, shock and all and take Kiev before we knew what was happening, and it turned into Verdun, in that conundrum, we got two very powerful members. One, the Finns, and the Finns have a long history of fighting the Russians, not successfully because of their small size, but doggedly. And they were probably the man for man, the some of the toughest fighters in the world. And they have their own arms industry and they've got some of the best artillery in the world. And then you add Sweden, which we always thought was a neutral and you know, going back to Vietnam would ankle bite us, but now it's a front line with this long border. And it's got, you know, SAB fighters, it's got some of the best military hardware. These are the people who make Volvos, you know. And uh, when you put in Norway, Finland, Sweden, not Sweden doesn't have, F, I don't think they have F-35s, but you add Denmark in there, and there's that's the largest aggregate group of F-35 fighters in the world outside the United States, even larger than Japan. So what I'm getting at is, it didn't happen this way, but the old issue, don't put any more... Nations into NATO, it's too big and that means that we're all going to have to get on the same page and we're not on the same page has been modified somewhat by this war has prompted two countries that were very carefully reluctant not to join NATO, very eager to join. And that's been a big boon given what they bring to the alliance. They're not weak countries and they have borders with Russia. And Could you explain France's
0: exact role with NATO, by the way? It's well, it, goes, it goes back
1: to uh Charles de Gaulle and the pick that he had that, you know, you go to a I think if you go to a war museum in Cannes today, it'll say D Day, June seventeenth, the day de Gaulle set foot, not June sixth, when we liberated France, but it was a very distinguished country. It has a wonderfully majestic history. And it's, you know, it's the Napoleonic aura about France that its military has. So when the Cold War started, de Gaulle didn't want to be wed wedded at just another European country. So he created this force de frappe, which is an independent nuclear deterrent. About 180, I think guided missiles at the time with nuclear warheads so he could make foreign policy with the soviets or the chinese in a different way and then he got out of nato full participation for a while and then he tried to oppose britain uh, in various ways and he would always oppose what britain they call them the anglo-saxons the americans the canadians and the british but Take away all that, and the fact is that France, even in those years that was ankle biting NATO, was never to the point where the Soviets said, we have 6,000 nuclear weapons, the United States has 6,000, and there's a French with 180, and they're just a wild card. No, they always said the 180 in a war would be used with the United States, and so a lot of it was verbal and rhetorical, and... Until the, the second Iraq War, they usually bitched and moaned, but they were with us. And I don't I don't know I I, I have I given where I grew up and given I get kind of angry sometimes about French scholarship in my field, uh, postmodernism, Lacan, Derrida, Foucault. All in all, the French people are majestic people, as I said, and yeah. it's great to have them as allies and. It requires a little bit of patience given how great they were. And now they feel they're just one among equals. We've got to remember also when Lord Ismay, when NATO was created, he, he, that famous phrase is still important. Keep the United States in because without us, there wouldn't be a NATO. If the United States wasn't in, they would have taken over Ukraine and Putin would be on the border of Poland right now. I mean, the, and into Europe. Not that he's not already, but he'd be right into Europe. And so the United States is in. And then the idea was to keep Russia, not Soviets, keep Russia out of Europe because of the traditional hostility between the two. And then to keep Germany down. And if there there was not a NATO alliance, I think Germany would have gone nuclear by now. And it would be doing in the military. I think it would be bossing people around the way it does economically. Right. But NATO is a great leveler. So we have to it's it's a costly investment and they don't pay their way and it's flawed. And we've got Turkey. That's an anti-democratic Islamic country that triangulates again. Given all that, this war did help solidify NATO and brought in two valuable members. And that's what they're they're talking about. Yeah. In it, from articles. the
0: perspective, by the way, Victor, of a Russian, and uh, maybe I hope you can answer this uh, regarding Finland. Is there a, oh, of course, they're neighbors, right? So they're, they're us in Mexico. Right? But do they have a,
1: do the Russians have a respect for the Finns? Yes. In November of 1939, we talked about that a little bit with Sammy. They, under the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, they felt, that each side would take advantage of the other, or they they were allowed to take advantage, so they told Hitler, We're going into Finland to carve off some key border places. And Hitler let them do it. And so they invaded. But the problem was it was cold and it's very cold, and the Russians are used to cold, but they're not adept to it like the Finns. So the Finns had you know almost 800,000 troops of of a country i think it was only 5 million and they had white winter clothing very warm they had some of the best marksmen in the world they were on skis and this big clumsy just like we see in ukraine russian juggernaut comes in and they paid they had terrible morale like today they were poorly led like today they didn't have the strategic Objectives defined clearly. Do they want to absorb the country? And they had a brilliant guy opposing them, Mannerheim, much more capable than Zelensky. I'm not making fun of Zelensky, but he was great. And they fought November, December, January, February, March, and finally the Soviets just poured you know a million men in and ground them down. And they had to sign a armistice but the subtext of the armistice was yes we'll give you some land and concessions so you can say you won but we're still independent and you can't crush us because you'll pay a terrible price and of course then they were very careful in world war ii during the siege of leningrad uh, they did not go in they could have closed that circle by going in on that corridor into russian land and they had given their word to the soviets that they could fight with germany and they did And they would oppose, but they would not take Finnish troops and put them in Soviet territory. So they fought their side. They supplied the Germans, and they flew a lot of Finnish pilots, and they kept that shoulder around St. Petersburg, Leningrad, but they did not go in and annex. And then after the war, Stalin decided he did not want another Winter War. So yeah, they're very they're very tough. And I just heard a, a. and addressed by the Finnish ambassador, um, consul, I'm soon to be, I guess, ambassador. He, they're very proud people and they want to remind the world how tough they are. And, uh, because yeah. of their defensive mentalities, um, they do certain things very well. They're, some, I think the greatest marksman in World War II, contrary to, you know, enemy at the gates and all that stuff was right. not German or Russian. But it was uh Finnish. I think he, a Finnish marksman had the macabre statistics of uh, the most lethal marksman in the history of warfare. And then when you look at today at the Finnish artillery, I think they have 700, 700 major artillery pieces and they're well made and they're well, so... It's a plus to get Sweden. I'm not being chauvinistic, but it's a plus to get the Swedes and the Finns into NATO. And um, yeah. I think that's what, two, that's what you Norman want. Nymark and yeah. Ralph Peters are trying to, uh, I, I think, successfully trying to convey.
0: Yeah, so we, we've, uh, in the past, uh, past podcast, I've talked about Strategica, so folks, go to the uh, Hoover website. Hoover.org and uh type in strategica in the little uh, you know, the search box and you'll you'll come across it. So hey Victor, maybe we should stay on things military because I wonder if the Finns or the Swedes and the other um military forces in, in the world think that abortion is central to what they what they do. We're gonna talk about Admiral Kirby and some of his tirades. And get your thoughts on that, Victor, right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful It promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, two two, um, U.S. military uh, stories that uh, if you can address both of them. The first has to do with John Kirby, who is a retired rear admiral. He's the spokesman for national security matters in the, in the Obama administration. I think he was the spokesman for the um, um, state department. I don't know that as a Navy officer, if he ever was non-communications related, I think he was always a PR person. There he is. He's also pisses me off. Pardon my French. He's, you know, now, the Catholic out there, just like Austin, believe it or not, he's a Catholic, and there they are advocating for for abortion. He was asked a question at a uh, press conference within the last week or so. I'm so glad you asked me that. And he talked with real passion um, about how just how important the military's uh, Biden administration military preoccupation is with abortion rights and providing abortion. To um, uh, service women, so that's one topic, Victor. You might want to comment on that. And the other uh, kind of shocking story has to do with the um, our, our submarine force, the Navy. There are just uh, thirty-one ready attack submarines. I believe forty percent of the submarine force is in a bad way right now. So, but. You know, let's talk about abortion instead, Victor.
1: Your thoughts? Well, uh, we have Senator Tuberville putting a hold on appointments. In the in, is it the Marines only, or is it all? I can, I I think. Is it, it I think it's all, but I can. All, be wrong. Yeah, yeah. And his point is that with limited budgets and short shells, we we don't have artillery shells. We don't have javelin shells. We don't have shorter ship missile sufficient reserves given our largesse to ukraine why is the military in general going under these woke issues that are extraneous to combat efficacy but in particular if you have a military base within the confines of a state that after Roe versus wade has decided they have limitations on abortion and if a female soldier within the military wants an abortion and she happens to be stationed in a state that is more restrictive than say, open, no rules at all, basically like California. And what does she do? And the answer is the military will what? Subsidize her a flight and fly her out of uh, the base in which he is into a more conducive base, that supposedly, or I guess to, I'm not sure about the statute, whether they're also just sending them to civilian non-military hospitals that give abortion on demand. And that's very expensive, but then so is transgendered surgeries and stuff. So I think the point that they can't answer is After you gave away $50 billion in weapons to the Taliban, and after you've given over $120 billion to Ukraine, and we're short on on all the key key critical um, statistics of artillery shells, as I said, missiles, Patriot, everything. Why in the world would you spend thousands of dollars per soldier to fly a person out so that they could exercise their right their abortion rights when it, it's really problematic whether somebody is in the military who is pregnant can be on active duty anyway and that used to be the attitude of the military in their early days of allowing women you know to go into con- all that stuff so that's what john kirby is trying to fumble about and uh, he, he was a spokesman for hillary clinton when she was in the state department I, I first came exposed to him, as many of our listeners did, during the Benghazi mess. And the more he talked about the Benghazi killing and, and debacle, the more it was clear to me that Hillary Clinton was highly culpable. Right. So I'm not It was, it was about a impressed. video, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not right. impressed with anything he's said. Yeah. And uh, that's I, one of the great public lies of, of, of recent times. Yeah, it was. It was. that he, she... She was ready and we have these internal memos, which she didn't, she did not want to upgrade the security because they felt that it might show that in a, in a uh, campaign year, uh, they weren't prepared. And then more importantly, they lied about the cause of, of that violence. They kept telling everybody that it was a ad hoc, uh, spur of the moment GPS mortar attack on Americans in the embassy and earlier and due to a right wing uh, Coptic video maker in the United States that put a video on. No, that wasn't why. It was a pre-planned Al-Qaeda related, ISIS related hit. And no matter what some of our officers said, the general consensus was that those guys had planned it. They were adept with a mortar. They put the. Mortar on the target and killed our soldiers. They knew what they were doing. It wasn't just about a riot. And that's what Obama that came up in the remember when Candy Crawley intervened with Obama in the debate. Oh, what a what a critical point that was, moment yeah, that was. Yeah, hijacked the obey. Yeah. And then Mitt Romney, all he had to do was pull a Reagan. When Reagan grabbed that microphone and said, I'm paying for this. Yeah. He could have grabbed that thing and said, Damn it, you're not the a debater. You're the moderator. Right. Shame on you. And instead say just... Oh, no, no. It was a terror. You know, it's just... I got so angry when I watched that. Yeah. Well, submarines, Victor. Well, submarines is funny because uh, we are challenged in so many areas. The Chinese have more surface ships than we do. They have... I think they have a larger, much larger army. We have these issues. As I said, with woke, uh, but, but there has always been one area where the United States is preeminent, and that's submariners, both nuclear, uh, tipped muscle, uh, you know, so the old Poseidon, uh, Polaris Poseidon, and on and on, uh, missile guided submarine, or uh, just the fact that American submarines could dive deeper, could go on, could stay longer, could, to, could travel faster. It's kind of a myth that we keep thinking that the Germans had the best submarines in World War II. That's not true. I mean, we had this Baleo class submarine that if, in terms of overall depth, speed, um, uh, and reliability. It was better than the first U-boats. They came later at the very end of the war in very small numbers, very sophisticated U-boats. But we got to the Gato class in World War II. It was even better. Right. And they were, they were used in the versions of the Gato class were used into the fifties, late fifties. So we had the best submarines. I think we, we sank, um, more than half of all shipping that was called Axis shipping. It was a wonder. It was a very costly campaign, but that was our trademark. And then we were the first people to go under the ice pack. We were the first to have successful nuclear reactors. We were the first to launch sophisticated missiles from submarines during the Cold War. Our triad bombing bombers and everybody remembers the bombing B-52 fleet, the land based missiles. And the third leg of the triad was our missile. It couldn't be detected. So that was our forte. And now to learn that some of these uh, submarines, I mean, we only have about a a third that are out there. And the other third is under repair. And we've got another third that's got labor shortages, part shortages, supply chain. We had one of our most sophisticated submarines crash. the, The captain crashed it uh into an under underwater obstacle, it's still not repaired. And multi-billion dollar piece of equipment. So it's it's not just submarines. It's what the United States did best and which most effectively created deterrence in the Cold War because our submarines had the accumulated firepower to destroy entire nations, a single submarine. And they couldn't find out what they where they were they went right. too fast. They were too stealthy, and they were the best in the world. The idea that we just would abandon that legacy and just let them idle in the shipyard as we're waiting for parts, or we're short labor, or we don't have the money—it's just insane.
0: Some, there, you this, do you think it, within the within the navy has is is there? Um, I don't know how I'm going to say this. An anti-submarine element as opposed to a pro-ship element as opposed to a
1: pro-aircraft um, well, yeah, an element. Yeah, it was always that way with surface ships. So in World War II, it was the battleship um, lobby. Because when you see something like the Iowa-class battleship, the USS Missouri or Iowa right. or Pennsylvania, you know, they were in the first Gulf War. They looked beautiful, but that... Profile and those huge big guns as a symbol of power. So when the aircraft carrier came along, at first they resisted it and we were way behind. The Japanese, were, when Pearl Harbor broke out, we only had in the Pacific, we had just got the Hornet and we had the ancient Saratoga and Lexington. Like they were battle cruisers that had been converted. And then we had the Enterprise. And so Saratoga, Lexington, Enterprise. And uh, Hornet, we only had four. They had eight, ten, and you could make the argument that maybe in terms of value or efficacy, they had better planes, and they were better. And so that was because we were had stayed too long with battleships. And so did the Japanese. They had the Mushasi and the Yamamoto, and those were consider, you know, those were just the biggest battleships that have ever been built seventy three thousand tons. They called it the Hotel Yamamoto. It, it was so expensive to operate, they just stuck it out at Rabal and let it sit there for most of the war before it was sunk. So there's always a battleship. And then when the carriers started to come into to popularity in World War II and they were very valuable because you know a 16 inch battleship volley will go about uh, 18 miles and suddenly you have these bombers, dive bombers torpedo bombers that can go 300 miles from the carrier and back even in some cases but drop tanks 400 miles so that's like a artillery shell they can go that far so at a battle like coral sea that was the first battle in history where neither side saw the other one when they attacked they were so far away so that was the idea that wow now we have a carrier and then when you look at world war ii all of the carriers there was only one in the norwegian war that a british carrier that was sunk by surface ships every Mm -hmm. other one was either torpedoed by a submarine or uh bombed into oblivion by another carrier's air force but my point in this is so there was the the battleship was obsolete then came the carrier and they cost now about 15 billion dollars And it was always that the United States would have 10 to 11 carrier groups and we would have three to four operating and we would have three or four in reserve and then three or four would be refitted and updated. And that came in a zero sum budget that came at the expense of submarines, even though submarines, uh, John Keegan wrote uh, a book on naval warfare and that was his argument that In terms of a bang for the buck, you could get four or five sophisticated nuclear powered and uh, nuclear uh, missile equipped submarine for one carrier. And I think when Hyman Hyman Rickover, the submarine advocate, 30 years ago, they asked him, remember that famous retort? Somebody said, well, an ally of his in Congress said, well, how long would our carriers last in a shooting war with Russia? And he said, five minutes. And what he mean, meant then is true now that if you're going to protect Taiwan and you put the USS Gerald Ford, for example, right. in the South China Sea, they have weapons that can sink it. And what would those be? Those are volleys of six, seven thousand small missiles, probably the size of your leg, that would be launched at night about two inches above the water below um radar and then they would dip down and and they would punch big holes you know all through the hull, and you couldn't stop it And so we've got to i think people are understanding that just as the battleships had to change and by that i mean it's good to have surface ships so we have frigates now they're basically light cruisers in world war ii but they're they're jam-packed with missiles and with uh anti-aircraft missiles and they're very valuable. And the same thing's gonna have to happen with these fleet carriers. And by that yeah. I mean they're gonna have to go the world back to the World War II idea that you might want to have instead of four, 13, 12 big fleet carriers and maybe there's eight or nine marine carriers, why not have seventy uh, what we call Jeep carriers, light or escort carriers, maybe 10,000 tons with a little platform and have drones on it. So you could put, instead of 5,000 guys in a $14 billion platform, you could put maybe, I don't know, 150 people. With a right. whole fleet of drones with bombs, and they would be spread out all over the South China Sea. Right, it would be hard to get them all. So that was that's some of the current trends that are arguing that um, submarines are very valuable right now. And if we're going to keep surface ships and aircraft carriers, they're going to have to change there's too much there's too few and they're too expensive and if we we lost a carrier defending taiwan we wouldn't have the wherewithal to repair it really right place
0: just curious victor before we move on to um more topics have you have you ever been in a submarine
1: i ever no i have been on a fleet carrier out in the atlantic i was on the john kennedy in 2003. Okay. And, and watched the uh, landing and take off for two days, three days, I think. I've never been in it. Have you?
0: No, 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 not at all. No people that work at General Boat. Oh, uh, I take that back,
1: <laughs> Jack. I was at a, a 1960s ride in Disneyland and we everybody <laughs> went this little submarine and went down and then the fish swam and then they brought it up. Uh, I always want to get one of
0: those submarines in the back of the comic books. They're like six dollars (laughs) and ninety seven cents. Get your own
1: submarine. I don't think uh, that uh, after the Titan collision, a lot of people are going to want to go into a private enterprise submarine.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Especially when the when the company says it doesn't want any old white guys with military experience. in Submarines guiding your program.
0: Yeah, people with intelligence need not apply Well, Victor, we're going to move on uh, To uh, a a uh, cultural woke matter And then we'll, we're going to talk about something you've written for uh, The Blade of Perseus So uh, let's get to that woke topic right after uh, This important message
2: Ah <sighs>
0: back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, I saw this. Uh, oh, well, if, let me mention first the Blade of Perseus. That is your official website. Go listeners, especially if you're new, go to Victor Hanson son S O N Victor Hanson dot com and check it out. You'll find plethora of links to Victor's appearances of the podcast, radio interviews, maybe some some uh, Fox segments although I'm not too sure there are many of them, links to his books, archives of this podcast. And then you'll find these pieces, also his American Greatness articles, syndicated columns, and you'll find ultra articles. You'll click on it. What's ultra? You'll try to read it. You won't be able to. Why? Because you have to subscribe. These are pieces two or three a week, exclusive to the website that Victor writes. And if you're a fan of Victor's writings, and you're not reading the altar articles, you are depriving yourself. There's a, a a ton of this kind of content that Victor produces over a year. So I heartily recommend uh, that you do subscribe. And we're going to talk about one of the pieces, series that Victor's written right after, you know, later in this podcast. So VictorHanson.com. And uh, if you're, hey, if you're on Facebook, uh, check out the Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club. It's not related officially, but it's, it's there. And good people uh, run that. And uh, look for VDH's Morning Cup. Sign up for that. And if you are on Twitter, at VDHanson, that's Victor's handle. So, Victor, I have to – I just misplaced this. uh, Oh, here's the headline. Yeah, there's a headline. I'd like to get your your take on this. I call this uh, the cultural rock, paper, scissors, which we know that game, rock, paper, scissors. So, um, black – lesbian harvard law grad i would think that's at the top of the hierarchy victor is censored by a blogging site by blogging site name of medium for quote unquote hateful post saying transgender women should not be allowed to compete in women's sports victor we've you know there's this tension within the gay community the lesbian community but uh and I, 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 you know, I don't mean to be I'm not joking about this, but you know, um the black lesbian law professor, I think, kind of outranks me and outranks most things in this woke I, I culture called, that assesses uh, people, but I guess it doesn't anymore.
1: Uh well, the transgendered movement has been very successful in climbing the ranks of intersectionality. They've kind of started at the private first class and they're up to four star general. And they've been promoted and promoted over the gay community the black community the latin the latino community the the so-called feminist community and then even the force multiplier so you know every once in a while some right-wing guy shows a, a graph that he <laughs> you know that which multi- force multiplier um uh, trait gets you up to four star and that would be things like as you say black female Lesbian, you can't beat that. And yet you can't apparently on these issues about transgenderism. And so any all of these things are based on a central principle that white males. White males who are heterosexual and if to the degree they're still Christian are exploiters and they have a history of exploitation, and they owe gays, transgendered, female, and people of color reparations, whether that's affirmative action or actual reparations, who knows. But uh, the problem with it is they don't talk about class, so, so it doesn't mean anything. So you're, you get this ridiculous with the black, lesbian, female, Harvard law degree graduate is a greater victim deserving of compensation than who The person in Bend, Oregon, who's a chainsawer or his whole life and never made more than 40,000 a year. It's because he you know an old broken down white guy like me, you know so not me as far as what I do, but as being a white male 69. and it doesn't make any sense. And when you make a coalition with based on victimhood, And there's so many multiplicities of victimhood, then you can't figure it out. And I always thought that black lesbian women could not be culpable with anything because of the intersectionality rules. But apparently, if you're insufficiently sympathetic Mm -hmm. to transgender people in sports, then all of your protective armor vanishes and you're vulnerable. It just shows you the ridiculous uh, ridiculousness when we start looking at people as a collectives, and at B as stereotype cardboard cutouts of race and gender. Notice I didn't say class. Remember when you were in college? Race, class, gender, race class. Now there's no class. It's always race, gender. So it's it's absurd, and it's um, it's it's just that way. And when you're hiring today in the university, you know what people are talking about. It's well, we have a guy from India. He's very dark and he's not, but is he a protected repertory candidate? Oh, well, we have a black guy. Well, then, well, we have a black woman. Oh, well, wait a minute. That's a flush in the full house. Well, we have a royal flush. We have a black, I guess, black, gay, female, transgender would be a, a full. Is the royal flesh the highest uh, hand you can but get, I, Jack? I, I believe so. Yeah. So if you have that, that's you have all four. Yeah. And again, the common denominator is we're not looking at individuals. We don't care whether the person is a nice person, a, a bad person, a capable person. No, it's just your outward appearance and your sexual preferences. Yeah. And well, you mentioned
0: least, class, by yeah. the way, Victor. I'm
1: sorry. Go ahead. And finish what you said. Well, it's a it's a road to Armageddon. I mean, it's just, yeah. It's just, you destroy meritocracy in this country, will vanish in a generation.
0: You know, speaking of meritocracy, and and I hate to you know, and race. No, I don't hate to, but I did. I sent you this. I we weren't going to talk about, it, but I saw a a a um, tweet series um, by some, a guy named Richard Hanania that talked about. Uh, this hospital in Los Angeles, the, um, the Martin Luther, it was the Drew Medical Center, the King Drew Medical Center, which is not doesn't exist any any longer. And it was it's just from 1972 to 2007, and it really was a race based hospital in in hiring, and uh, it was a, it turned out to be
1: a dreaded hospital well, and when I mean, you when yeah, I mean. Think about how the whole mentality of the great society worked. So there's been a history of oppression against blacks. And therefore, in the black community, we're going to build a special black hospital to address their needs. So check, 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 so far, so good. But the employers who happen to be black will not be subject to the quote unquote racist laws that affect all other hospitals like Uh, very strict investigations of any disability claims, strict enforcement of sick leave and days off, uh, complete firing of incompetent doctors. Once you get rid of that meritocracy and you substitute race, then you get into an Orwellian situation where a black youth is shot and he's in an ambulance and he tells the driver, don't take me to Martin Luther King because I'll die there. And they had a much higher incident of botched surgeries yeah uh people dying on the operating table just killed in the emergency room with the wrong dose it's not because the majority of the employees were black but because the philosophy of the entire hospital was repertory everybody in this hospital has been a victim and therefore we do not have to achieve standards and maintain them like other hospitals and who were the people who as they always are the people who paid the price were the inner city right
0: i i mean i my my east coast prejudice or, or biases and I, I didn't i never heard of this but the los angeles times actually won a pulitzer prize for writing about this but that was almost 20 years ago i doubt the los angeles times if, if this hospital was around today whatever uh dare to do uh, an extensive piece on it. it was you know quite quite interesting about uh, meritocracy in america hey victor um We've got one other topic to talk about and that's an ultra article, a series of articles that you've written for the website and they're about, they're titled The uh, Mystic Chords of Memory and we're going to get your, um, you know, talk to you about here well, th- these pieces and why you've written them. We'll, we'll get to that right after this final important message. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, if I may say, Victor, I, there's some beautiful writing here. You, you talk about family and life on the farm, etc. And uh, this is a two-part uh, series, and it, it it talks, I think, deeply about memory and how we, how you know, decades after, how we consider important events in our life, uh, how the 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 classics taught about memory, what they taught about memory. So, why did you write this piece, Victor?
1: These pieces, and what are they about, essentially? I have it. I think maybe it was the brain fog from long COVID. I would have these kind of drifting of cognitive, kind of like Joe Biden. And uh, you, you might be president someday. Then <laughs> I think I have not turkey gobbled in a young girl's cheeks. Okay. I wouldn't qualify. Oh yeah, I didn't go on to strategy number two after my turkey gobbling fail. That is the blow the hair trick, right? Yeah, and of course that that was never covered. You're not a sniffer, right? Yeah. Joe, Joe doesn't do those things. Right. But anyway, uh, I had this thing. I was thinking. I remembering couples that my parents knew in their zenith. That would probably be their age, 50 to 60. And I was farming. And every time people would come out here to the farm with my parents, you know, and and I thought, wow. And they were very friendly. They were, you know, other farm couples or judges or whoever they were. And I, I I started remembering them. And I thought, wow, I've got to call the Martins. And... Wow, the will. I remember Ray Gonzalez. I got to talk to him, and then I just for brief seconds I thought, well, "Wait a minute, Victor, that was 1980. <laughs> what the f are you doing? Are you an idiot? Eighteen? That is forty three years ago. That's like 1900 to the middle of World War Two. Right? They're, wow. they're dead, Victor. They're dead." 'Cause yeah. they were in their mid fifties. They'd have to be ninety eight now, maybe some are alive. But then I snap out of it. But I can remember the conversations, I can as if it's frozen in time. I think all of us get into these I guess you'd call them a time warp where your mind suddenly goes through some kind of time door or window and you're back there and right. you can remember every single thing. And I can remember all these things that were like you look back and they're just tragedies. They're just crazy. I remember I'm at school and I, I wrote about that. And my mom called me and she said, Victor, we have 105. And I, I had helped get the crop down with my siblings. Remember, we have 105. I said, what's up? It's nice and sunny here. She said, there's a big tropical storm. I said, oh, I, I saw that, mom, but it will miss us. Don't Oh, no, no, it's starting to rain. And they're predicting two inches. Well, we had all borrowed money, and that was the whole crop. So I got on my little putt-putt car and went over Pacheco Pass, and all of a sudden it was raining, and here we were trying to get, and the, we picked way too late. It was sour, so instead of August 25th, we picked like September 10th to get the necessary sugar, and my God. We were out there in the mud trying to roll these paper trays with half dried grapes into bunches. I mean, into balls, cigarette rolls, we called them, or biscuits sometimes, put them onto the vine as if they would ever dry out. And, you, and then you'd have to pull them back out. And I did that for a week. And then all of a sudden, you look around, there's a whole family out there, and it's all. Mm-hmm. And I had thought of that line at the time because I was. Uh, it's a beautiful line, by the way. Yeah even this there will come a time when even this will bring bring a joy for you to remember and it's from uh the aeneid and uh, i thought of that and i know that line very well it's aeneas tells that the scattered trojans after everything is going badly that they have mm-hmm. been so heroic in their tragedy and their defeat that someday they, they have to keep fighting because someday that will be a source of comfort to them and it is for me so I remember thinking that at the time I thought I was out. I was all muddy I was rolling I was too boy 1980 79 I uh, 80 and it did again in 76 so there were these secret the big rain of 76 the big rain of 82 nice. uh, and and 78 so this happened on three occasions and I would come back and 76, I'd come back and um, 78, I was overseas, so I came later. I I left right before, excuse me, I left right when it was raining and then to Greece and then the big one in 82, I was actually farming but in each case, I remember thinking, wow this is a disaster and yet you'd see your whole family and everybody out there, kids people in their 60s and they're all on their knees trying to save this and it's impossible. It's It's just one of those things that there were so many negative, um, forces. Did you know it was impossible while you yes. were doing it, but you had to do it anyway? You had to. You couldn't just sit there and, you know, have a drink and say it's gone because, you know, you, you, in those days, you had about 300,000, you had about, oh, probably about $800, a thousand an acre, maybe more than that, 1500 bucks an acre. And you had a hundred acres, a hundred thousand um trays and then you had all borrowed at jimmy carter 14 percent. we had no money and all of a sudden you see it all go up and the insurance was no good um as we learned in 76 but then there was a good thing in 82 we saw that was coming and we were adapt then we my siblings and I, we we picked a little earlier and one of the neighbors. Yeah, you didn't get 20. Those are going to be Wheaties or sour. And I said, it's going to rain. I can feel it. And the long, Oh, it never. rained. I said it rained. And all of a sudden we had one hundred thousand and they were almost dry. And so we had the you know, it was no weather for national uh, weather service. Beep, beep, beep. You had these <laughs> radios, you know what I mean, for rain alerts. And if you're on the ag station, There is a southern hurricane that we felt was going out westward out to the uh, Hawaiian area. However, it has just detoured and it's on a track to reach the Santa Barbara coastline and into the Central Valley in seven hours, at which time a northern storm coming from the Alaska track will probably intersect with it somewhere over Fresno. And we anticipate it could be two to four inches of tropical moisture. And, you know, you think, oh, well, uh, an open raisin tray can take a quarter inch at most. And then the bugs come in, the sand gets embedded in the fruit. It's no good. And you think four inches, it's going to float down the the row. So we got out and everybody said... You know, they, they call us. We said, "You go do this. You go get to that labor contract. You go get all your friends you knew in high school. You go get this guy." And we all come back here in an hour. Get everything. If you have to get it, go into the unemployment office. Go to Home Depot. Find anybody that can walk, and you offer them. We got this huge crew. We're all working with them. They say, "Oh, we're tired." And at that time, it was twenty-eight dollars. I think a thousand roll. Okay, thirty-two. Now, how about forty? And they said, "Oh, damn it!" And we—I'd got a little calculator and, and saw that what would be the, the amount we could pay—fifty dollars—and all of a sudden, everybody kept working. And then we'd say to my brother, "Go get, you know, a hundred cokes, get a hundred twin a hundred packs of Twinkies, get everything. Go if if you know guys are Mexican, go get a, as much of the best Mexican food." And that was just all day long. And we started at three in the morning and at two in the morning. We looked around, we thought, oh, my God, we rolled a hundred and five thousand trays that were not rolled this morning all by hand. And then the boom came. Literally 20 minutes later, thunder. And it was like, you know, it was like the Philippines or something or the Marianas. It just rained and rained and not and it just wouldn't stop. And then everybody was open. And they were these poor guys were just like us in 76 and 78, and they were all ruined. And then all of a sudden, we weren't. And all of a sudden, the price of raisins went sky high. And you look at the rate, it was so, you know, you have dirt rows. And within three days, there was Bermuda grass growing up through the paper in the rows because it was just crazy. And then we went out and we did the same thing. We opened all 100000 up. And then it got sunny, and then they dried, and then we got them in. And then any of them that... We're damaged. We build a raisin dehydrator ourselves, huge thing out of the building. And then we shoveled all of them onto wood trays and dollies and we turned on the natural gas. I would get up every three hours for four days, you know, 10 o'clock at night, two o'clock, six o'clock and go check the raisins and switch the things. And and we dried that we dried 50 tons ourselves and mixed them in with the other ones. And then we put them in. Nobody used sweat boxes anymore, but we they would sweat and they would even out. So we got these old, huge 150-pound boxes, and we did this till November 1st, and when it was all over. I said, oh, my God, we didn't. I did all these calculations. We spent, mm, Victor, we spent $21,000 more than we should have on the harvest, but we saved, you know, 200, right. 200 tons. So I can't believe it. We got $300,000 in revenue. And. It was all based on collective misery of somebody else, as we had. So I right. said to myself, "We lost everything in '76, everything in '78." Where some guys became very wealthy because they picked early, even took a yeah. chance, that, and now mm-hmm. we did, even though it was a, a yeah. sour, wear, And we and we paid off all the debts of that, and we were even for. And then the whole um, Jimmy Carter economy in '82 that had that Reagan inherited, he decided, you know, it can't go on. So he, we had that recession. It was terrible. The interest rates went up to about, you know, Paul Volcker, Reagan said, Paul, go to it. And I just remember that in 83, the whole raisin market crashed. But it was really important because we had paid off all our debts. And then when the price of raisins went from 1440 a ton to $400 the next year, and it cost about 900 to produce it you just yeah. cut, off, cut off all the canes and just sat there and didn't produce anything and just took the loss. But anyway, that was really a good a great moment. I really think about that. Uh yeah. but when I, every, Are I you, everybody everybody's listening to this. I know that you you've had those moments where you look back and there was a tragedy in the family and everybody comes together and you almost defeat the un- the, the improbable and you pull it off once in a while, and then you remember it the rest of your life. And that's what, you it, know, this something was else trying it, to say. He was trying to say that. In the you,
0: you, you also talk about uh, a little bit about, well, you have a paragraph in here about demographics, you know, the grand, so many, and now it, it kind of, it's an upside down pyramid in a way. And I just wonder, like, you seem to have a collective memory of, of so much of your grand, great-grandparents and grandparents, said, are you the repository of your family's memories and conscious of the fact that it's there's not that many people to pass it on to and that memory uh, should yeah. be passed on?
1: Well, I had a twin brother who was very close with my grandparents. I'm an older brother. And then we had a first cousins too, that their mother died very early. So they were sort of raised as our siblings. And I had so my first cousin dash sister is very interested in it, so she'll send stuff to everybody. Okay, uh, but not about. She was too young. She's younger than I am. She was. She knows things academically about the history of the family, but the actual growing up, when my grandparents were from, the, right. I mean, they had nineteenth-century accents. They they had w- vocabulary that nobody. Victor, come in here. We're going to give you the Dickens if you don't or way out yonder. Or go out yonder there, you know, or when are you going to ride down and see me on the wheel? They called bicycles the wheel. And so that was any one of them come to town on a stage coach. Yeah. I mean, my grandmother got Alzheimer's and she'd go out on Mountain View and say, Victor, where's the stage? And so, I mean, they they got married in 1911 and yeah. in this house. And my grandfather was born in the house in 1890 and his his great, his grandmother built it in 1870. So there was no a wow. Well, they've a version of it. So, yeah, I, I I have that. But I have really good memories of my both my father's grand, my father's father, a Swedish uh, horsebreaker that broke horses. And then my they were very different. My maternal grandfather was very uh, businesslike, polite. He was just like out of it. Gentleman. I mean, he never, I never heard him say a a cuss word. He never smoked a cigarette. He never had a drop of alcohol. He never had a, he paid, when he died, he was paying his bills twice. He was so worried about. Oh, wow. And he was just this kind of Cato like Roman. And then my other grandfather was just, he was out of a John, I mean, the John Ford movie. He was this solid muscle Swedish guy that in his late seventies would get on like a Mustang and break the horse in front of you, you know, and he had him, we'd go down there and he, he, we have to cut chickens heads because he had his own chickens. We slaughtered hogs because he had his own hogs. He had Fox terriers all around. We, we had mules, we had donkeys, we had to ride bareback and we were riding very early. And I swear, I, and then when he died, we brought the horses up. But I never have ridden since then because at a very early age, we were riding bareback. We knew sad a saddle up, but I just got bucked off so many times. You know, I thought I'm never going to ride those blank horses again. <laughs> but he was he was doing it in his late 70s, even though, you know, he had this big tumor from World War I where he had been gassed and it ate out his mouth. And his, he was disabled in his stomach and he wouldn't get it cut out. And so finally my dad said, Hey dad, here's the, here it is. Now you're going to have that thing and you can get it cut out once. But if you don't, it's going to fester and stink just like those cysts on that horse. Okay. That's right. That's a good idea. I do not want anybody to smell it. I get it out, and cut once and they went in and cut it out and it came back in, I don't know, two months.
0: That's a. Okay. But they were Don't great, want you to so smell I, like a horse,
1: Dad. I, I was really That was one of the reasons I got interested in classics, because when you started reading Hesiod or Virgil, Georgics, Ecologues, that was the whole world of the ancient world. And that's why right. I, I wrote a couple of books on ancient farming. Um, the Other Greeks was the one I spent the most of any time, any book I've ever written. It was about the agrarian discovery of Western Civ. But you, there's passages throughout there that resonate, and especially... I was a Hellenist, but I loved Latin as well. I taught Latin more actually than I did Greek, but there was some passages like that. I mentioned one in the essay about Ovid, Ovid, excuse me, and uh, Eurydice and Orpheus when he looks back. It's kind of like the lot myth, but it's in classical antiquity. And she turns into nothing. It's all about have confidence when you're on a perilous mission. Don't double guess yourself. Right. And he's told he can bring her back up to the real world if he just doesn't look back. If he looks back and doesn't have confidence that she's following him, and nobody would have confidence. So of course he's gonna look back. Right. And so, hey Moses tapped the rock twice, right? You yeah, know, that's <laughs> exactly. And so uh but classics is because it's frozen it had the same kind of values. That was what I discovered. And I yeah. think a lot of people feel that way too that that I know that every generation looks back and said oh I walked in snow and these kids are spoiled and Horace had as I said in the essay had, had a term a, you know a laudator temporis acti a praiser of the time past in a derogatory sense and all of these uh, warnings about not doing it but I think it's healthy as long as you don't stay in that time window that <laughs> war. So right. I'll be reading or I'm working in the yard and I'll be gardening I'll find a horseshoe, you know, or I'll find an old, uh, we had a guy that was helping us uh, remodel and he found this weird thing in the dirt out here. And it was, he had to look up on the internet. It was some type of tool they used in 1880, a hand tool for, uh, I think it was calibrating weights or something. And so every once in a while you get that and, it, and right. it's, it's kind of eerie that you all these people were here and you don't really know. It's kind of when I dug in Corinth, you know, in the 70s as a graduate student, the same thing you find housing utensils in antiquity, but it was the same here, too. Yeah, but that was kind I, of good. And you've it, could, it's, can, it's been good can, for me. Yeah, I'm I very lucky, very lucky to have that those yeah. voices in your head all the time Although, it's, it's, it's it's a, a really beautiful
0: library. they're beautiful articles Victor I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to hawk subscriptions to the website but it, this is the kind of stuff that it's, is regular yeah, I would it. just
1: caution everybody it's very healthy to go back and lay down and think about these wonderful moments with these people that are dead that gave you so much well, the only problem right. with it is it is a, a time warp <laughs> until you gotta come back <laughs> Right. and sometimes yeah. you don't want to come back and you get dreaming and you start living in that other world and you can't do it. You got to, yeah. you'll, you'll be absorbed. It won't I think it'll kill you if you get romantic or nostalgic for the past. You always have to be ready to fight in the future. But
0: I agree, you're right. I I when I was 18 to 25, I lived with my grandmother, her sister who was 10 years older, or her and her brother-in-law, these three old Italians. And and everyone would come over every day at three o'clock. And you, th- I, I'm so glad I was uh, steeped in that uh, experience. And I, I think of the lovely people. But then again, you're right. It was like 45 years ago, 50 years ago. It's time to, but you, but it's um, it's calming and it's wonderful to to know that.
1: You know, I just um, want to. I'll just finish today. you had a, a letter, and I did too, from a couple people that. When we were talking about the South, they thought I was oh yeah talking about memories about the civil uh, about the Civil War was a little bit critical. Right thing about the South is very ironic right now because people from the most liberal places in the United States, the Bay Area for example, or the Los Angeles Basin for example, or Manhattan are moving to states of the old Confederacy. Right. such as Florida, such as Tennessee, such as Texas. And once that burden, that stain of slavery was removed, and once Jim Crow died out, then the South was able, what I was trying to say, was the South was able, able to Kind of be the true voice of the, you know, you read, uh, I'll Take My Stand, that famous book by Robert Penmore. He was in it, um, right. About the Southern Agrarians. And they were defending. Oh, he wrote Kings, uh, all right? King, yeah. All the Kings Men yeah. right. Yeah. Well, there was 10 great scholars. A couple of them were kind of crazy, but their argument was the South had the, and it was, it's in Thomas Wolfe's You Can't Go Home, Look Homeward Angels, that they have a unique, stable, polite culture. Mm -hmm. It's more slow. And it's a critique of modern industrialism. Okay. It's kind of simplified, but nobody could, that, that argument was stained by slavery and racism. But once that disappeared, then you were into a whole new rubric. And that is black people and white people had known each other intimately for much longer than in the North because that didn't really happen in the North until World War I and World War II and the great industrialization and the need for labor. And so once you got the prejudice out, then you had a familiarity between the races right. on equal terms. If you look at Atlanta or Georgia, but more importantly, the positives of the South could reassert themselves without the stain of slavery and or racism so what's happened is people look now at the south and they say, you know people are more polite there yeah and they honor tradition more and they're more interested in in human things and the hustle bustle of silicon valley is a crasser and and more anonymous existence and so i think it's not just we have confidence in our local communities. We're not. We're going to have lower taxes. We're going to have less regulations. We're going to have more freedom for you. But it's also when you go there, people are friendlier. And I, now that the South, it, it, the North doesn't know what to do, because they look at these old Confederate states and think, "Wow, blacks from Detroit are moving back to the South." Right. Left wing nuts from Haight-Ashbury are moving to Tennessee. Now they may be. They may have different reasons, but part of the reason is they're looking for a stability, a family-centered tradition, greater religiosity. So it's, it's one of the strangest things that you've ever seen, that right. this old blue state Confederate stronghold is now solidly Republican. And there is a lot – it's the locus classicus for black Republicans. Tim Scott's a good example. Yeah. Clarence Thomas is a good example. Tom Sowell you know, grew up in part in the, in the South. North
0: Carolina, right?
1: I yeah, think he was yeah.
0: born there and before he moved to, to New York.
1: And so but I'm getting that's what I wanted to say. This right. I'm a big supporter of contemporary Southern culture. Every time I've gone to the South, and I go there a lot, been to every Southern state. I've had nothing but uh hospitable treatment from both black and white it didn't matter right much more so than in the north or the West
0: and Victor I I lived I think I've told totally, you I lived in Fredericksburg Virginia at the top of the battlefield and Murray's Heights and I before that Sharon and I lived in Spotsylvania where there was um, big battle there. Big battle you know, in Courthouse and kind of vectoring through, you know, through Chancellorsville. It was but but we lived there six years and I think it's fair to say relative to where I grew actually grew up in the Bronx that there was much more sense of race and someone is of a different race and therefore racism in New York, liberal New York City than there was In uh, rural Virginia, uh, there was just a more blended and uh, collegial neighborhood. Hello, ma'am. Hello, sir. However, you know that guy said said hello to me. He just happened to be black, as opposed to someone had seen a black person walking down the streets of Woodlawn in the Bronx. It would have been a problem. That's what the left never
1: understood. Anything that's artificially constructed with race failed. You have all these. The secret to the whole screwed up movement to reduce it down to its essentials it's mostly led by upper upper class and upper upper middle class bi-coastal professional wealthy privileged elites and they don't feel comfortable with or they haven't grown up with poor people of all colors and all races man they patronize people that's joe biden you know telling Charlemagne, the black uh, guy, you ain't black because you know what I mean? And yelling at the other guy and calling them a they they're condescending and they're not comfortable. But when you take poor white people that grew up with Mexican-American people or Asian people or black people, they don't have that problem because they don't see them as anything other than people, whereas the other people see them as totems are people that need their help on their conditions and their requisites. And that's why the affirmative action thing never worked. And that's why it will never work. And that's why the woke thing will eventually fail. When you yeah. see these provosts and these college completely privileged white people writing these like commissariat communiques about diversity and inclusion and this people and the, they don't they don't live with people middle class people they don't feel comfortable and that's why they create that facade yeah but right. their own and, fears and I, I think, think. They're, yeah and so you know uh, final thing I I was at a place not I want I can't say where I, I but I just uh I, I also a guy I kind of like a lot is uh you remember Jason Woodlock um yeah he was that sports guy what yeah and he, like, he he, he right. went on Tucker a lot you know right I always liked him, and uh, I met him for the first time. Uh, I and uh, we talked for a while. I really like him. He he. What I liked about him was he he has strong religious faith, and he and he wasn't apologetic about it. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. He would
1: he would evoke it at certain times, and you don't do that on national TV supposedly. And then he was very loyal to Tucker, and I haven't seen him on TV. Recently, and he used to be a regular on Tucker, and I think that's probably because Tucker, but I, I, he's very intelligent. And it, the reason I mentioned it is we were talking about race and things, and, and I think, uh, we, when we say people who are non-white, um, are being successful, we always look at, at the academic or, you know what I mean? Like the mirror image. They're white academic or they're part mm-hmm. of a sophisticated or Don Lamone. But when there are some brilliant people that that's that come up on their own hard work and they're not academic and they're not. The, the reason that they they are so unique is they're not beholden to that white guilt ridden patronizing elite. Another another person is uh, is it Tyrus. It's on the Gutfield. Oh, I love him. Yeah, that guy has got a natural aptitude. I mean, oh, I don't, God. I don't know what is. He played, I think, college football. I think, he did, uh, was, yeah. But I mean, yeah. he has a natural aptitude that's much more sophisticated and better than most academics I've met with. Oh, my him. gosh. He cuts through the
0: BS. You know, people and he, and, ask me all the yeah, time, Victor, and, yeah. who, who should we get to speak at our fundraiser? I said, why don't you ask that Tyrus guy? He will. He is so good. Oh, he will he put sits, asses in the he seat just spot. There. He's
1: got a wicked sense of humor. He's yeah. Really, that I'm really terrific. glad that, a, and that, that by sheer, he's like Jason Whitlock, those two guys. And that, that was why. I get so frustrated with race because it always has to be defined and seen through the lenses of these these woke shysters and grifters and you know yeah and gosh when I got to Huber, I I I there we have brilliant people there but the two most brilliant that I thought were always Shelby Steele and Tom Soul every time yeah. I listened to Tom Soul he'd say something that sounded very simple. And I thought, wow, what is, how did he come up with that? You know what I mean? It was, it just cut to the quick. Yeah. And, and I was trying to, to figure out something. He said, is this what you mean? And the same thing with Shelby. So I have confidence about racial relations. If we just take it out of the university, we take it out of the hands of the white, bankrupt, bicoastal, left-wing elite, and just let people be people. And you'll get people like Tyrus and Jason Whitlock that come to the fore on their on their just enormity of their own talent. Yeah. Very kind guys people. I've met both of them. I think I met him when I did Gutfield. maybe not. Gutfill, yeah. I, yeah. I, I did meet Jason the other day and uh, I just wanted to say that I, I really was impressed. He's such a nice guy.
0: That's terrific. I I hope he was a fan of Victor Davis Hanson also. Hey, um, we're at the end of the show, Victor, so we thank our listeners for listening and if you're new, great thank you keep coming back. I hope you enjoyed this. Victor does uh, f- at least four podcasts a week too with with me the um, the marble mouthed black. <laughs> Can't get a straight sentence out of his mouth if you listen to some. I saw a lot some of comments who are on loyal
1: friends, Jack, and they didn't say that they were getting Yeah, well, you must have been Mr., Mr. all drinking at
0: uh, the Dick the, 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 the of group, Facebook group, Sophie. But then the other two are with the great Sammy Wink, and she's terrific. And well, I also
1: got one of those. By the way, I get so sick of it.
0: What. People kept criticizing you of your no, poor no, treatment of Sammy. Oh, <laughs>
1: yes, oh Victor, poor little Sammy. She's got such a pleasant voice, and she's. She does. And you just have to let her take over yeah. and dominate you. No, no, oh, no way, God. Sammy. Poor Sammy. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, Don't be so too. rough on Sammy. She, Victor. You know what she did the other day in your show. And what would that be? She asked you permission again if she could speak. Why does she have to ask you permission? Uh, she doesn't. She's obsequious. Maybe she's beaten down, but she's got to be more dominant and formidable. Well, do you, do you just try to beat down Sammy. No, I don't. And that was funny. Somebody gave me a lecture about that. Uh,
0: oh, wow. Wow. That was that okay, was we're interesting. Like folks. <laughs> Claire was still recording. Hey, yeah, I bet hey Victor, Shut Victor, up. Victor, though, I have to read a comment because, you know, pe- certain, some people who listen, on Apple, they rate the show. You can do that on Apple and iTunes, zero to five stars. Again, or practically everyone's giving you five stars. And some people leave comments. And And um, here's one. It's from, it's titled The Dean of Conservative Thought. The title says it all. Victor is remarkable as a scholar, probably as a farmer and an incredible voice of rational thought. I do not watch Fox News or any other television news shows. So I discovered Victor probably a year ago when one of the conservative daily emails featured an article by him. I immediately uh, go to search and found out about his podcast. I am now uh, and I have I guess have been a listener and also an ultra subscriber. Oh, that's nice. The low fee is worth it. I'm disappointed that he supports uh, that he supports President Trump and elected again. Since my greatest fear is a Trump nomination will lead to a landslide victory wait, wait, for the wait. Democrats. I, just,
1: I know. Let me just finish. I just got an email from somebody that said, "Shame on you! You're not supporting Donald Trump. I, I, You're an apostate. Yeah. You're a traitor." Well, I know that's. If, you, if folks listen to the, you know, uh,
0: the recording uh, with with Sammy that went up, I think, on July 23rd, which or 22nd. And I don't know why people think you have endorsed anybody because you haven't. You give. We're going to have a we're going
1: to have that. And we did before you and I. But we're going to have an update where we, you and I will go through all the candidates. OK. We will talk about the dynamics. We'll go. We'll we'll start with Joe Biden and Kennedy and why they're leaking about him and what they want to do with him and right. who well, else. We... Is, and then we'll talk about no labels, the role of a third party, Joe Manchin or Cornel West. And then we'll talk about Trump vis-a-vis his indictments, not indictments. And we'll talk about DeSantis. And then we'll talk about the human uh Torpedo or suicide vest, as one person said, Chris uh, Christie and all of the others that may or may not be running for vice right president. We'll get it all out there and we'll, you'll see that I'm trying to be very objective. I, want I open open debate. I think I yeah. want to see everybody out there. And I have one. I only have one prejudice. What is I that? I want whoever gets Whoever comes in second or third to swear that they will support the nominee, because we have no margin of error. We, and they didn't do that to Donald Trump last time. And so I want, if it's Trump, I want to say, if it's DeSantis, I want Trump to say, you know what? I support our nominee. Whoever it is, that's an, that's absolutely critical. If we're going to keep the, the, the house, we got to have Kevin McCarthy in the house and we've got to get a Senate that is reasonable
0: all right victor we're going to have to uh, we're going to just have to control ourselves here and and end it because the podcast gods have dictated that so thanks for all the wisdom you shared today thanks uh, that was gretzky's dad who who left that comment we thank him and everyone who who leaves comments uh thanks for your wisdom today victor and we will be back soon with another episode of the victor davis hansen show bye-bye
1: thank you everybody